All right, good morning. Um, if you have a Bible, you can turn to the Old Testament. And let me encourage you, you might need the table of contents. Uh, turn to the book of Jonah and find chapter 4. So Jonah chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And don't be ashamed to go to the table of contents. I had to do it this morning just to find it in this Bible, and I'm preaching from the passage. So Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, it's hard to find those very short minor prophets. So the title of the message this morning is Free Palestine, question mark. Like, is that what we want to be about? Is that our pursuit, our passion as, as biblical Christians? And we're in this series, and it's really a two-week series, and last week we looked at Stand with Israel, question mark, and we talked about that. And it's just a series about the church, that is who Christians are, the church, um, Israel, and Palestine, and just how we are to think about that and understand that. And just as a recap, so I just want to kind of review for you that we've been um, talking about this, I just said that, but last week, I want to give you a review of that really, really quick. So Stand with Israel... You know, we, we asked that question and we looked at some history. So I gave you a bunch of maps, a bunch of dates, timelines, and all of that. I think it was interesting, um, but it was a lot. And then we looked at theology because really to understand the church in relation to modern day Israel, you have to actually have a conversation about theology. And we talked about uh, those words, you remember? Dispensational versus covenant. And uh, we're not going to bring that back up today. But that, that was the last week, and basically we said this, you know, the question is, should I stand with Israel? And what I really said, I think, faithfully, I think, from the Word of God is that, yeah, we should, but maybe not for why you think. And we talked through uncompelling reasons, like, you know, uh, to gain a political blessing, like foreign policy for the United States. We talked through the uncompelling reasons. We also talked through four compelling reasons. And that is what we looked at last week. And so now today, I want to consider, I guess, the other question, and that is free Palestine. You know, how should a Christian feel about this? And so where are we going in today's message? Let me quickly tell you, it's similar in its structure to last week. But first, we're gonna, we are going to look at some history, a little bit less this time, but I want to consider some of the history around this question and give some perspective on it. Um, and so we're asking kind of with that, who, who are these people? Who are they? And then I want to get into the Bible, Jonah chapter four. And what I want to really do there is ask, who are we? Who are God's people to be as relates to these kinds of things? And so we will, we will camp out in Jonah chapter four and ask that question, who are God's people to be? And then lastly, just going to look at the question that we're asking and what should a Christian think about it? And again, some compelling and some uncompelling reasons. And so what I want to do first, we're going to get to Jonah chapter four in our second point. That is our time in the word of God this morning. Um, I'm going to just pray now. So if you just bow with me, I think there's a lot here to pray about and a lot in the world to pray about. So let's just pray uh, for this to God. Lord, we thank you um, this morning that we know you, Lord, that you are not uh, just an idea, God. You're not just a God that exists. You are a God who has revealed yourself and spoken in your word and in our hearts. So God, we thank you for the comfort of knowing you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, that makes us your children, your sons and your daughters, your family, makes us, as we'll consider this morning, citizens of heaven. So God, we pray for all that's going on in the world. Lord, we pray for peace. Lord, we pray for opportunity for the gospel to go forward in places where so many people do not know you. Lord, use us, Lord. Uh, Speak to some of our hearts this morning as to exactly how we're to be a part. And God, we just love you. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, let's talk about the history first. All right, so you have your insert, little section there for history. You won't be able to fit everything that I say into that if you're taking notes, but you know, just, just, I think what's most important is to just get some perspective. And I'm not going to review everything from last week, but I'm going to give you five kind of like, I guess you could say statements that I think help sort of bring this into perspective. So the first one is this, and it is that Jews have an ancient connection to the land of Judea um, or Palestine. All right, and we really covered that last week. We talked about that, but just a couple of reminders. Again, the key word, ancient connection. We looked in 1900 BC, the promise to Abraham. Um, we looked at the fact that Abraham went to this land and lived there and started a nation there. And we looked at, again, some dates, Moses, 1446 BC, the Exodus, King David, Solomon. So the point is this, really. I mean, think about it. This is not just like, well, the Bible says. It's like archaeology says, world history says. The people, uh, the Jewish people have this ancient connection to this land. There's just no no way around those facts. In fact, the Roman Empire, which was roughly 27 BC to 476 AD, you know, they actually are the ones who named this area Palestine. It was called, because there were Jews there, Judea, right? And then uh, Hadrian, a leader in the Roman Empire, because of a revolt by the Jews, wanted to insult them, so he renamed the province Palestine, kind of named after the greatest enemy of the Jews, the Philistines. That's the history of that term. And so, so that's where that came from. So around 135 AD, this, this area came to be called Palestine, and, and more about that in a moment. But again, just the fact that the, the, the Romans named it Palestine to offend the people that they understood were natives to this land shows that they were natives to the land. Like from all the way to Abraham, all the way to this time when it was renamed Palestine, this was a land that Jews were in. And that's a long time. That's like thousands of years. And so, okay, so that's going on. That's the first thing. They have this ancient connection. Second thing, second statement. And this is where we get into today. Non-Jewish Arab people came to see Palestine, quote, air quotes, Palestine, as their homeland also, right? As you would expect in the world where people are born and live and move, and that's what you would expect. Despite the prior ancient connection of the Jews to the land, this also happened. So let's think about that. Things like Muhammad of Islam 
You say, do you know, do you, do you know when that started? Well, when was he born? 570 AD, right? So this is much later. Um, but again, during this time, Muhammad and Islam. Now, Muhammad claims, Muhammad claims to be a direct descendant of Ishmael, Abraham's other son. Is that true? Well, we don't know because Muhammad claims it, and we, that's not the Bible, right? But he does claim that. Um, and it, there is some truth to the fact that Arabs are probably in some way descendants of Ishmael, but it would not be accurate to say that they all are, and this is just a conflict of Isaac and Ishmael. That kind of stuff is, eh, it's not really totally historically accurate. But the 12 sons of Ishmael did settle in the Arabian Peninsula, in the northern part, and there probably are some connections there. But again, the point is that non-Jewish people, non-Abraham, Isaac, Jacob people did make Palestine their home. Also, Christians did. The Crusades in 1095 AD. Many people moved to the Holy Land, conquered areas of the Holy Land. And the Ottoman Empire, which was for a long time ruled this part of the world, which was a predominantly Muslim empire. And so you have this reality in this area of the world where it is, there are Christians living there, there are Muslims living there, there are Jews living there, and they're pretty much okay with each other, and they all call it Palestine just because Rome renamed it that, and that's it. So you'd have a Palestinian Christian, you'd have a Palestinian Jew, you'd have a Palestinian Muslim. That's just the reality. Now, third point. This is where we start to get into the free Palestine part. In the 1900s, Jewish people from all over the world moved to Palestine for various and legitimate reasons. All right? So that's just like historical perspective and important to know. You know, a lot of Jews that were scattered about in the world moved back or moved for the first time because they probably actually themselves never lived there to Israel. And so where are they going to live? That's going to create the problem. But they moved back to Israel. Why? There's all kinds of various reasons. Zionism was founded in 1896, which is this idea, hey, we're Jews. We should be in our land. That's basically it. Um, But it can get kind of extreme. The Holocaust, where it was like, hey, we're Jews. We need to get to our land. Protection. That happened. People moved there. And then even not to get ahead of ourselves, but all the conflict between Arab nations and Israel creates this, it's dangerous to live in an Arab nation if you're a Jew dynamic. And so there are all these operations where tens of thousands of Jews will literally in one sort of weekend move from an Arab country to Israel for safety. So there's Operation Magic Carpet. And it's a real thing where like 100,000 or 45,000 Jews from Yemen move to Israel. And there's all these situations. So for various and legitimate reasons, many Jews moved to Palestine. Fourth thing, okay? Western countries gave the Jews more land in Palestine. That happened uh, because at the end of World War I, the Ottoman Empire, which was mainly a Muslim empire, was conquered and Britain took over Palestine. 
And there are things called the British Mandate, the Balfour Declaration. The British were in charge of this area, and they said, you know what? Let's give most of it to the Jews. That's what happened. So the Jews get more land, even though, and this is up for debate a little bit, but many would agree, actually, that there were less Jews in the land than there were Arabs. But the British said, yeah, but it's their land. That was their opinion. It's their land. So they got more land, not all of it, but more of it. Palestinian Arabs rejected this. Israel became a nation, like actually a nation, Declaration of Independence in 1948. Multiple wars have been fought and won, almost all of them, by Israel. Result of these wars is more land going to the Jews, lots of refugees that are Palestinian, and extreme measures of security through technology, surveillance, and extreme security. Okay, That's the result. So, so you have all these situations. You know, you have the PLO, which is founded, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Yasser Arafat. Again, we want to liberate ourselves from this situation. Hamas is founded in 1987, the Oslo Accords, all these things, all these things. We could go into so much history. But the main thing to understand is that, you know, modern-day Israel was separated into this two-state situation. And, and through all these wars, Israel has really come to be basically in charge of the whole land, but there are territories. So there's Palestinian territory, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank. You know, that's the current deal. Now, that leads us now to understanding this, I think. So, number five. Palestinians want freedom from all of this. Free Palestine, this is what it means. It means we want to go back to the 1800s. Not, I'm not saying they want to go back before technology. I'm not saying that. They want to go back to the time when there was no nation of Israel in this land, which I guess there were Jews there, but there was no nation of Israel there. Where there was no Zionism and where there was no Western, as they see it, interference in Palestine. British saying, you guys get all this land. America saying, we stand with Israel, that kind of thing. That's what they want. That's what they mean when they say that. So, so here's the Jewish perspective on that. The Jews would say, we never left this land. And that's true. Lots of Jews were scattered, but there always were Jews living there. This has always been our land. That's kind of true, too. The British understood this. That's why they gave it to us. That is accurate. Of course we established our nation, wouldn't you? And yes, many Jews from all over the world have moved back here for many reasons, because they needed to. We don't want to fight you, but we do need to govern our land. You want to eliminate us entirely. Have, you have violent political leaders, and you keep picking fights with us, and you keep losing. It's not our fault. That's the Jewish perspective. The Palestinian perspective, the free Palestine perspective, is this. In the 1900s, after being gone for thousands of years, Jews began coming back to the land in droves with the major help from white European colonialism-minded nations. Go take that land. Put them on a reservation. You enjoy the best part of the land. They established the nation of Israel, created millions of Palestinian refugees, took tons of land through wars, 
In the West Bank, Israelis to this day continue taking land from us. In the Gaza Strip, they have locked our people like in like a cage, an open-air cage. Some of them would say it's a, it's a reservation with, with barbed wire fence. It's a concentration camp. So that's the perspective of free Palestine. We don't want to be in this situation anymore. That's the perspective. More about that. But just some things to remember, I think, as we now kind of think about all of that that I just put out there. We're going to get into Jonah chapter 4 in a moment. The first thing is, do remember that Jews have a long history with the land. All right? Like, don't lose sight of that, because that is key to having the right perspective here. They didn't come out of nowhere in the 1900s because British colonialists told them to. That's not, that's not true. Remember also Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so it's not really like a, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. I mean, we're all sinful. Everyone has sinned. And a lot of what's happened there and here and everywhere is a result of what? Sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Much of the Palestinian conflict Much of their condition is due to them rejecting Jewish legitimacy, refusing peace, picking fights, and losing land through wars. It's just true. But some of the Palestinian condition is, and this is also true, due to the way Israel has approached this. Settling, the way they've settled in land, the way they have enforced their security. And so... What are we to think? How are we to consider this? Remember this too. Our citizenship as Christians is not America first, is not Israel first, is not Palestine first. It's a citizenship in heaven. Philippians 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await our Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember that. And let that lead us now to ask the question, that Jonah 4 puts before us, all right? Who are the people of God to be? Who are we to be? Really, the history is us really just talking about who are they? Now, who are we? Who are we to be? So it's kind of weird to kind of flip into Jonah just out of nowhere. I know that. And there is Jonah chapters 1 through 3. And I know that many of you do know the story of Jonah, but some might not. Let me just tell you quickly where we're at. This is a prophet, Jonah. Now, all the prophets um, in, uh, in, in the Bible don't stand with Israel, okay? <laughs> like some of them really confront Israel for their sin and their unfaithfulness to God. Jonah did stand with Israel. Um, he did, and I would say sort of wrongfully so. He was just a patriot. Um, now, Jonah chapter 4, here's how we get there. Jonah is called to go to Nineveh, a city that is, in their day, the most wicked, evil place anywhere. He's like, nope, I know what, God, you have in mind. You want to save them. I'm not on board. I'm going to flee to Tarshish, which is basically like the southern coast of Spain. It's like, I'm going to Hawaii. That's what Jonah was going to do. And he's on his way there on a ship, and he causes a huge storm of God's judgment and all these pagans who are more reverent even than Jonah is, the prophet for God's people, 
are like, how do we get right with God? And Jonah's like sleeping and they throw him off the ship and the storm calms. And then Jonah is swallowed by a huge fish, a whale. And then he is vomited up. Literally the word is vomit. I think to speak to the way Jonah departed from the fish, but also to speak to the way God experienced Jonah's self-righteous attitude. He's vomited up on the shore of Nineveh. So then he's like, well, I guess I do have to do this mission to Nineveh. He goes and literally gives the lamest sermon ever preached. It's like eight words in English, and it's all doomsday judgment. Yet God, because God saves not the messenger or the message, I mean, the lameness of the sermon, stirs a huge revival. And basically all Nineveh is saved. Even the cows are getting saved. And Jonah, delusional as he is, thinking, well, maybe even though this huge revival has happened, I still think God's going to smoke these people. He sets up a little campsite outside of Nineveh to watch and see, because apparently he would enjoy watching Nineveh be destroyed the way Sodom and Gomorrah were. And so that is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. Who are the people of God to be? And the point here is going to be, first, the people who love mercy. But we're going to get that point through by way of seeing that Jonah is not that way, but we need to be that way. Make sense? All right. Chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. That's the revival in Nineveh. It displeased Jonah. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Wow. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot here, and we're just going to look at it real fast. Jonah's angry. He has completely lost his grip on who he is as a child of God. He's angry. It actually says he's very angry. The Hebrew word is gadol. It's a key word in Jonah, a great city. That's Nineveh, a great storm that comes on them in chapter 2. Great anger that's coming now over Jonah. He's angry. Strong feeling of displeasure. Why is he angry? Well, he tells us. But we can sort of quickly just say a few reasons. One, he's angry because of what he sees as injustice. He's like, no, these, this is a wicked nation, immoral, godless. They're not getting what they deserve, and they deserve to be killed. He's angry because... Bad people are getting a good thing. He's also angry because of divine freedom. You know, God says in his word, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. God is free to do as he wishes. He is God. 
Jonah doesn't like that. It's bothering him here. And he says very blatantly, it's an extremely dark, self-incriminating statement. He says, I'm angry because of your mercy. He even quotes the most profound verse in the Old Testament about the mercy of God. He quotes it and says, that's why I'm angry. I knew you were a God of mercy. This is a dark moment in the history of Israel, of Jonah. So self-incriminating. In Oklahoma City, there was this uh, trial for this man named Dennis. He was on trial for armed robbery of a convenience store. And he fired his lawyer and represented himself. And the district attorney who was prosecuting him, named Larry, was doing an okay job. And uh, the, you know, this criminal, this robber, was doing an okay job defending himself until the store manager was on the stand testifying. And he got on the robber's nerves. And he jumped up and accused her of lying and said, I should have blown your head off. The defendant paused, long pause, and he said, if I had been the one who was there. <laughs> yeah, the jury took 20 minutes and convicted him of his crime. A self-incriminating statement. Jonah's is worse. He even says he'd rather die, implying that he would rather not live in a world where sinners like those in Nineveh are given mercy. Jonah had forgotten, perverted, or perhaps never known that the only basis for his own relationship with God is what? Mercy. How had Jonah come to despise the mercy of God? The only way anyone could ever become one of the people of God. It was mercy, after all, by which God called Abraham. Joshua 24 says that Abraham worshipped many gods beyond the Euphrates with his forefathers. God called him out of that by his mercy. And God wants his people not to be angry about his mercy or haters of mercy, but what? Lovers of mercy. And beacons of light, hope, and mercy toward wicked, godless so in view of this, these challenging first four verses, how ought a Christian to feel about issues like freeing Palestine? I'm not saying it answers it, but who are we to be? People who love mercy. Now, let's continue. Verse 5 through 11. Who are we to be? A people who love people. People who love people. Do you love people? People who love people. Here's a city filled with wickedness and idolatry. And the love of these people has been the point of disagreement from the very beginning of Jonah. Feeling and channeling divine compassion for a city filled with wicked people. This has been the point that Jonah has disagreed with the whole story. And the Lord now patiently... Key word, God is patient. 
orchestrates a classroom-type lesson for Jonah, and I think for us too, on the east side of Nineveh at the little campsite that Jonah made. So let's look at it. Again, the question is, who are we to be? And I would say a people who love people. So look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. Okay, so Jonah went out of the city. He's angry. He's suicidal. He went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. That's the word for tent, campsite. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what's going to become of the city. You see what I'm saying? His delusional hope that Nineveh is still going to be judged. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. This is interesting. It's a, it's a classroom on the east side of Nineveh. The Lord God appointed a plant. Watch, this plant obeys God more than Jonah does. And made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was, here's Jonah's emotions. He's gone now from suicidal to, what does it say? Exceedingly glad. Little Jonah's so happy now. Because of what? The plant. Because of the plant. What kind of plant was this, you say? It doesn't matter, I say. Jonah still has no problem with receiving kindness from his God. Essentially, a beach umbrella on the east side of Nineveh. It says he is gadol happy, greatly happy. Watch verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. Make a note of all the times God's appointing things for a purpose and they're doing it. And yet Jonah and God's people are appointed for a much greater purpose and they're not doing it. Who are we to be? People who love mercy, people who love people. Okay. Verse 9. So Jonah's suicidal again. I mean, he's an emotional roller coaster. But God said to Jonah, verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. Here's what God's saying. He's like, oh, you are capable of mercy and compassion. Oh, you did have it in you, Jonah. You are capable of getting moved, being upset, being burdened, being sad for something. It's in you. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It's, it's amazing the way God orchestrates this classroom 
and this lesson for Jonah and, of course, for us. The matchup here is Jonah's love and even pity for his all-natural, God-provided beach umbrella, for his comfort, versus God's love and compassion and pity for a huge city full of human life, each and every person made in the image of God. But let's not just make that a concept theologically. These are people's sisters, people's brothers, people's toddlers, people's children, people's mothers. These are people made in the image of God. And Jonah has no pity for them. So the question then becomes, the lesson then becomes, I think, for any Christian reading the Bible, you know, what do you need to insert instead of this plant? Thing that you find great comfort in, and how might the Lord use a similar scenario to reorient your priorities, even your burdens, things that move you? This city of Nineveh, they don't know their right hand from their left. It means literally they don't have the law like you do, Jonah. They don't have the revelation of God. So I think it's helpful here to ask some honest questions in light of Jonah 4. Again, who are the people of God to be? A people who love mercy. People who love people. And then we ask things like, what kind of things upset me? What upsets me more? Personal inconveniences or the hopeless situation of human beings unreconciled to God by the millions without a gospel witness? And again, I don't want to do a guilt trip here, but I just think it's helpful to get some conviction from the Spirit sometimes. How am I strategically seeking to extend compassion to lost people in our world? Who are we to be? People who love mercy, people who love people. Let me show you a picture to kind of make it personal. This is a picture, an exact sketch of the size of the Gaza Strip over top of Raleigh. That's it right there. So 140 square miles is the Gaza Strip. And again, we're not just talking about Gaza. We're talking about free Palestine. That's a bigger issue than Gaza. But just because that's in the news and so much is going on there, just think about it. Over 2 million people in that area, 99.9% Muslim, 50% under the age of 15 years old. And they're confined there by security, surveillance, and assignments. And then just, it's interesting even, I think, to think about it like overlaid over Raleigh. Such a different story in our lives, right? No one's confined to Raleigh. Everyone chooses to move to Raleigh. What's the percentage of people here that have accessibility to a Bible or, or or even Christians? Not a lot, right? There's a lot of lost people here and a lot of issues that we need to address here. Amen. But it is a different situation, right? 
And I believe that Jonah 4.11 should echo in our hearts as we consider issues like these in our world. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, that Gadol city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So that's history, who are they? That's Bible, who are we? And now, third and our final point, should a biblical Christian want to free Palestine? What should we want? What should we be seeking and pursuing? And I'll give you a couple of uncompelling reasons and then a compelling uh, reason that I think is obvious from our study this morning. The first uncompelling reason would be this. The historically inaccurate claim that Jews are merely settlers, occupiers, and colonialists. Um, that's, not, that's just not accurate. And so we want to be quick to say, no, no, no. We're not going to get super fired up about that view. Because we have done some homework. And we just know. We don't even need a Bible for it. We just know that's not accurate. Um, it doesn't mean that, that Jews haven't done things wrong. It doesn't mean that this has been handled well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory. The second uncompelling reason, and I just really want to put this one out there, is because it's cool. All right? And, and I mean that because actually I, I read an article, watched a video on this. Um, you know, overwhelmingly so. It's very young people that are very into the Free Palestine uh, agenda and movement, which predated this war that we have now. And the reason uh, that this article talks about is um, that it's, it's the cause of people who love diversity because in their minds they kind of associate Israel with European Jews who are more white. So this is the black and brown cause, people think. It's not really helpful or accurate, but it's how young people, I think, often are relating to this. They also see that a lot of old people, a lot of like my parents and a lot of older people are standing with Israel. So we disagree with them about everything else. So we better have this view. And then because social media told us to, right? Um, there's, There's... A huge gulf, you know, people who watch the news have one view, people who get their news from social media have another. And so again, it's an uncompelling reason, because it's cool, because it's trendy, because people are fired up about it. That's not, that's not compelling. Not for a biblical Christian who has his citizenship in heaven and takes his cues from the word of God. But what is a compelling reason? And I know that you already kind of have this in your heart from our look at Jonah. And it is this, the call of God to love mercy and love people, neighbor and enemy. Last week, we asked the question, should we stand with Israel? And I said, yeah, probably we should, but not for why we think. And this week, should we want to free Palestine? And I would say, yeah, probably we should want that, but not for why we're being told to. And maybe not even how we're being told to. But it should be in our heart to want to relieve human suffering, to want to love mercy, to want to love people, to want to be who God's appointed 
us to be. It should be. The call of God to love mercy, love people, love our neighbor, love our enemy, see human life preserved, see human life flourish. That's God's heart. To share the good news of Jesus Christ, which is, and we know this, true freedom, real freedom. And I'll let that lead us now to where I want to close this two-week series, which is when Jesus first announced his ministry, he went into a synagogue, they gave him a scroll, he unrolled the scroll to the place of Isaiah 61, Luke 4 verse 19 records this, and he read these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You can, I, I, I hear in that, I feel in that, that Jesus wants to bind up the brokenhearted. He wants to stand with the brokenhearted. He wants to stand with the brokenhearted people of Israel in their plight. But also, Jesus says, I'm here to proclaim liberty to the captives. I'm here to open the prison to those who are bound. True freedom. Deeper freedom. Real freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. As the team comes back up and leads us in a song where we tell this Lord that he is great.